Well, good morning, church. Uh, we are going to dive back into Romans this morning as we've been in our series here, and we're going to be at the end of chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Just a few verses this morning, and it's one of those passages where really it seems like it should have, we should have just kind of kept going last week because it's right at the end of the passage that Pastor Matt preached on um, last week. But there is so much in these three verses that it, it really warrants uh, taking some time to look specifically at what they mean and what they have for our lives here this morning. Um, you know, as we've been in Romans and as we've been talking for week after week after week, about what it means to have faith in Jesus and to be justified by our faith in Christ alone and what he has done and not being justified by our works. It's almost like we're kind of having, like Paul's trying to retrain our minds, retrain these people to see clearly exactly what their salvation is really in. Because it's like we're so prone to believe that it's somehow the result of things that we've done. And there's, there, it almost seems like there's, there's that, that's just this tendency that we all have, this drift that we're going to have. And so what Paul does and what we've done is week after week after week, we've talked about, no, it's not the things that we do. It is not the good that is in us. It is the thing that Jesus has done. It is God himself who gives us righteousness from outside of ourselves. If only we have faith and we are justified by that. And it means a new life. It means death to an old life. There's these huge things that happen. But the, the issue that we run into and you've probably been feeling it, is that when you talk about stuff like that week after week after week, what we find is that it starts to feel like this is all just sort of theory. It starts to feel like this is all the kind of stuff that people just sit in coffee shops and just talk about endlessly, right? Uh, journal about and think about and endless introspection almost because uh, how does this get practical to the point to where he does care about what we do? In fact, it's very easy at this point to begin to make the mistake of believing that because uh, Paul's been talking so much about how it's not what we do that saves us, that, well, then probably what we do doesn't really matter that much, you know, which is maybe kind of a nice thing. Maybe that's good. Maybe I don't have to worry about what I do anymore, right? Pastor Matt talked last week about how that's not true. In fact, Paul anticipates that objection that people are going to go, well, if it doesn't really matter what we do, I think we can all finish, know where that sentence is going because we've all said it or heard people say it at some point in our lives. Paul's response is what we talked about last week. You are a new person because of the death you have to your old life. But then where we get to this week where he says, nope, this is about as practical as it gets what God expects from you. So we're in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. And I'll put it on the screen. And Paul says this. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." So there's three things that Paul is saying here, and they are incredibly practical because this is about how we live differently because of the gospel. 
we are now starting to ask the question, how does the gospel change our life in the most tangible way? Because it seems that Paul's argument is this. This isn't just something that you sit and talk about in a coffee shop endlessly. This is something that leads to dramatic transformation in the life of each person who encounters it, who encounters the resurrected Christ. Now, I want to give one disclaimer before we get into the three things that Paul's saying here, and it's this. If you're not a Christian today, and when I say a Christian, what I mean is if you believe uh, sincerely that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died for your sins, and as a result of that, your, your relationship with God, you have life in God, you are a part of the kingdom of God, even now, moving forward for eternity, because of what Jesus has done, that you recognize that, that, that you are forgiven by God because of what Jesus has done, and that you are justified by faith in him. If you believe that, if you have believed that, and if you believe that today, then, that, then you are a Christian. And if you don't believe that, if you kind of like the idea of that, or if there are things about that that really resonate, or if some of the stuff we've talked about, about the state of the world that we live in, or the state of our human hearts, or, or the fact that God is evident in his creation, or, or the fact that we know that sin leads to death, like all of these things, you might say, I agree with that, I see sense in that, I see, re- I see good thought in that, I really like that little gem right there, and I want to take that and think about it for a while. But even if you agree with some or all of those things, but you your faith is not in Jesus. You don't believe that your very life and, 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 and hope and peace are dependent on what Jesus himself has done, then I would say you're not a Christian today. And I don't say that to, to offend you, and I don't say that to insult you, uh, but the reason I make that distinction is this. What we're talking about today applies to people who have faith in Christ, And one of the biggest errors that we can make in Scripture is to take something that applies to Christians and the way Christians are supposed to live and then think, well, maybe I'll just start with that, right? Then you end up with lists of rules. Then you end up with uh, behavior modification and just try to be good in this way and maybe you'll get to a point. So I make that distinction because I want to make it really clear that if you're not a believer, there is so much to benefit from in knowing how the gospel transforms a life and what it looks like and why the world desperately needs it. But please don't start with this, okay? Go back and start with faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, then this applies to you, so buckle up, and I'm not going to go easy on you because Paul doesn't, okay? There's three things that he says here in this passage, and they are incredibly practical. The first one is he says this, we are too. If the gospel has changed us, if we do have hope in Christ, we are to not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, So the first thing is to know this, you are to not let sin reign in your mortal body, in in your physical body right now, to make you obey its passions. The first thing that Paul wants to be very clear to everyone who has faith in Christ is this, because you have faith in Jesus and what he's done, you are dead to sin. And what that means is that you have the opportunity for the first time ever, if you just became a believer, let's say, for the first time ever, to be free from the enslavement that comes from sin. You didn't have a choice before. 
Paul says you were enslaved to it. He says in verse 6, um, in the passage we looked at last week, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So in the old life before Jesus has saved you, you are a slave to sin, Paul says. He says, you really don't have a choice. You're going to lose the battle against sin. And so the most exhausting thing you can do and disheartening thing, and sadly something so many people do, is they try to just fight sin instead of having a hope in Jesus and finding a hope in him. They get exhausted, you get discouraged, you get worn out, you end up rebelling against God, running away saying, I have no interest in this, or you end up slaving away for him, thinking that you're somehow gonna earn your place with him. But in truth, God's saying, bad news, you're not good enough. You can't do it because you're a slave to sin. Well, the good news that we've been talking about is that you are no longer, as believers, slaves to sin. And so the first step in the freedom that we have in that is, is every day, beginning our day, maybe ending our day, a couple times in the middle of our day, being able to remind ourselves and be clear on the fact that we are dead to sin. And what that means is that it does not reign over our mortal bodies. And what that means is that there is nothing good about sin. So we now, because we can be free from sin and its enslaving power, we now can be honest about it. We can be honest about just how bad it is and how far it reaches and how much it is a struggle for us. If I believe in Christ and have been saved by him, I am no longer a slave to this. And what that means is that sin can no longer dictate to me. Though you may obey it, and the Bible predicts you probably are going to continue to obey sin when it, when it begins to tempt you again and again, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. Do you truly believe that sin is bad, that it leads to death, and that that death leads to destruction? Do we truly believe that all sin ultimately leads to some form or another of death and then it leads to destruction. That it's not good in moderation. That it's not good in certain circumstances. That it's not good uh, even when it's completely understandable that we would do it or struggle with it. That even though everyone around us struggles with it and we struggle with it and the people that we love closest to us and the most struggle with it, uh, uh, that that doesn't make it okay. Most likely most of us, most of the time, aren't truly convinced of this, of just how destructive the power of sin is. And so the first thing that Paul makes clear here is he says, because of the freedom you have in Jesus, you have the ability now to be honest about just how bad this thing is, and you need to be clear about just how much death sin brings, because you can have freedom from it. You have... This, we have this love-hate relationship with sin. We live in the flesh, and what that means is that until we are in heaven with God, we will struggle with temptation. 
The good news is that it's never going to be more than we could handle. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says this, and many of you know this well, and many of you have taken encouragement from this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptations, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there is a promise here in Scripture that says that sin never has to defeat you. It never has to win. And that you can know that God will not ever allow you to be in a situation where you go, you know what? It's just too much for me. I'm not really, it's not my fault, right? If I do this, if I behave this way, if I act this way. The truth is that it is wrong to tolerate sin. And so the first step is to stop and to look and to do what we call almost taking inventory of our life and saying, you know, what what is it that is in my life that sin might be affecting? In what way am I in love with the wrong things? In what way am I finding satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in the wrong things? In what way am I prone to place things before God? In what way am I allowing death back in? Because if I'm free from it and not enslaved by it, I don't want it anywhere near. We are sort of uh, perpetually bad at self-evaluation and being honest with ourselves about sin. One of the best uh, things I've read about this is when the author C.S. Lewis wrote Screwtape Letters, which pastors love talking about Screwtape Letters, but you always have to explain it, and it gets kind of confusing, and so I'm sorry. But, you know, if you know it, then great. Tune out for the next three seconds. But basically, it's, this, uh, it's these letters uh, written from one devil, from one, uh, uh, one demon to another, giving him advice on how to tempt people. You're like, why on earth would anyone read that? It's incredibly uh, insightful because you read it and you go, oh, this is exactly how the enemy would tempt me and how the enemy would exploit my weaknesses and what the enemy would look for. And so I was reading this and I was reading as this one, uh, this one demon is writing to another and giving him advice on how to cause a Christian to stumble. And he says this to him, and tell me this isn't pretty accurate. He says, he says to this demon, you must bring him, this is the Christian man that he's trying to tempt, you must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself, which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office, right? We all know this person, right? You can spend all this time kind of thinking and, 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 and going to church and, you know, Bible studies and, you know, looking at all of the messed up stuff that people are doing in the world out there outside of you and your realm and your world and your spheres. Amen. We're not. <laughs> it's true, guys. We all can. Uh, we're not that great much of the time, most of the time, it seems, at actually seeing where we have ourselves began to compromise and developed this, what I think is more uh, the greatest danger, which is a lukewarm relationship to sin, and one that can bring great death. We accept sin in moderation. We say, I'm responsible enough to handle this thing. I'm mature enough to handle this thing. I can deal with it even though lots of other people can't. I'm not that kind of person. People know me. It's different for me. 
Oftentimes when Jesus confronted people with the sin in their lives or when we see people in the early church confronted with sin in their lives, we see people confronted with the very things that they would have considered their greatest strengths. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and talks with him about how to basically be more righteous, Jesus says to him, sell everything you have. If you're a rich young ruler, in your mind, everything that you have is probably your greatest benefit. People see you walk in and you go, oh, I have so many resources. I have so much that I can use to bless and help people. Jesus says, sell it all. Why? Uh, Well, because if this man is seeking righteousness, he's going to really struggle to get there with this wealth that he has grown dependent on. When uh, the young lawyer comes to Jesus talking about the law, when Pharisees come to Jesus talking about how to be more righteous, he confronts them with their self-righteousness, with their obsession with the law, with their endless lists of rules and the things that they needed to, to, to believe and to do and to live out. Even uh, Peter himself... Jesus' disciple and the great apostle is confronted by fellow, his fellow brother uh, who says to him, uh, you know, you're showing favoritism to this one group of people over another group of people in the church. In his efforts to stay pure and to stay holy and to not, you know, get in the fray of any way, uh, to be maybe a good example to the most important people, he had to be reminded. The truth is we have blind spots, And if there's one thing that Scripture makes abundantly clear about sin, it is that it brings death. Why, what does this thing promise me that makes it so tempting? What does it give me that I feel like I can't give somewhere else? What does it give to me that causes me to go back to it again and again and find satisfaction in it? What does it cost me in the end and others around me? Why do we continue to go back to the things that we know ultimately lead to death? We often go back to those things because we don't take them seriously enough and see. I remember when I was was a kid, uh, we had wood paneling in our house. I think everyone did. I don't know. We had wood paneling in our house. And there was a point when this little crack in between the wood paneling and our living room started to have this stuff that looked like dirt come out of it onto the ground. And more and more would come out. And I was like, what in the world is this? We had an exterminator come and he said, you have subterranean termites. Now, and, and I thought, well, this doesn't look that bad. This is fine. We can vacuum it up. We just vacuumed it up every day. We vacuumed it up. What's fine. We're vacuuming it up. That's all we got to do. It's a lot easier and a lot cheaper than an exterminator coming out and drilling holes and injecting toxic things into your house and hopefully maybe doing something about it. I built a deck uh, a few summers ago and I noticed a board in a very important part of the deck was beginning to be eaten away by termites. There's two ways to handle that situation. You go, well, you know, eh, no big deal, right? Or if you know anything about termites and you actually care about the deck that you built yourself, you cut that board out, you remove it, and you put another one in. Why? Because you know what's going to happen. You know that it will spread. You know that there will be death. What Paul is saying is that because we have freedom from sin and we're not under its bondage anymore, then we are in a position where we can be as honest with ourselves about the dangers of sin and what it doesn't promise and give us, but we have to take it seriously. Rather than make excuses for it, rather than think, oh, God doesn't care so much about that stuff anymore because I have Jesus in my life, we say, no, 
God still tells us that these things lead to death. And to be honest, you may be less likely to be sitting in a group of people and having like a bottle and a paper bag getting passed around trying to decide if you're going to partake in that. And you may be much more likely to be sitting in a group of people when everyone starts to gossip about someone. And as you find yourself in that situation and you say, this might be, I'm not sure if I should, we're not sure if we should, but what do we tell ourselves? We say, probably this person we're talking about, they're way worse than the fact that we're gossiping about them, and so it kind of is justified, right? They need to get talked about. God wants this out there. Oh, no, even better. We're going to pray for them, right? So we just have to be sure that we're all on the same page. We compare notes before we pray. What we say in that situation is we say, their sin, what's going on with them, the circumstances around me are worse than this little thing that I'm going to do. And we're very good at doing this. Paul's very clear. We are to not, we are to turn over that stuff in our lives because it doesn't reign in us anymore. But what the Bible doesn't tell us to do, and this is important, the Bible tells us to take sin seriously and see the death that is in it. But what the Bible does not tell us to do is to live in constant fear of sin, right? I know that lions will kill me, but I don't live all day terrified of lions. I stay away from lions. And that helps. I found that that helps. So a Christian is not to obsessively filled with fear, uh, you know, be con- continually just living in fear of, of, of what possible bad thing could come and what temptation could come. We are not to create buffers around ourselves and make such lists of rules that we eliminate even the possibility that we might encounter the temptation of sin because those things won't keep the temptation away but we are to know how dangerous this thing is. The first thing that we have to ask ourselves, if we become to trust in, if we begin to trust in Christ and we really do have a handle on how much we're dependent on God's grace and not our own works, we've kind of like let go enough of our self-righteousness that we need for Paul to say to us, but remember, sin brings death. And in no circumstances, in any situation, in any relationship, at any time, is it a good or okay thing? We have to take it seriously and know what it brings. He goes on and he says this, Do not then present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So he says there's a way that you can present yourself, make yourself available to sin, the very members... um, of your body, the parts of your body to sin, and they will be used as instruments for unrighteousness. They'll be used as tools for, to accomplish unrighteous things. But instead of that, he says we are to, once we have gotten this clear understanding of sin and where it is in our lives, we are to do whatever you, what you do every time that you're aware that there's something wrong in your life that's keeping you from God. You are to turn and present yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life. You now belong to God. As serious and bad as sin is, the good news is you now belong to God. So present yourself to him so that he may use you for the work that he has intended for you now that you're his. 
we continually offer ourselves to God. We present ourselves to him day after day, again and again. And by doing this, we make ourselves available to bear his very image and his name in the world. Now, there are, there are the first thing is that we present ourselves to God because a relationship with God is what powers everything. God has given us the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that I seek to do is not to go follow rules, but to seek to be in the presence of God himself, to find life and to find hope from God himself. If you have ever truly been confronted by the sin in your life, you know that there really is only hope found at the feet of Jesus. And not saying, and I used to do this, I was really good at this, saying, I'm going to take care of everything in my life and then come to God because that's the only way he's ever going to know that I'm serious and I mean it. But he doesn't tell us to do that. Present yourself the way that you are to God. The reason that we want to turn away from sin is first and foremost more than anything else because it gets in the way of us and God, and we want to be connected to him. Being comes before doing. Devotion comes before action. And this is really frustrating for those of us who just want to go and get stuff done, who just want to go and prove that we can be better and do better. But first and foremost, we present ourselves to him, much like you would present an offering, and we present ourselves to him to do something good with. But we present ourselves not just with God, not just to God, but we present ourselves for God, to work with us and through us. God is present in our world in a tangible way, but he chooses to be present through his creation. And it's not just the mountains and the clouds and the water and the planets and the stars. He chooses to be present in and through us. It's crazy, but he does. And throughout Scripture, what we see is we see a God who says, I'm going to be present in the world through you. And then through your whole family. And even through an entire nation of people. God says, I'm going to be present in the world, manifest in the world, through an entire nation of people. God's desire was to manifest himself through the nation of Israel for the world to see. And so we bear God's image into the world. He gave the people the law as a guide so that they could show how good he was and how objectively righteous he was. One of the most incredible like, things that has like, so richly blessed my understanding of what it means is um, when Carmen Imes, um, who is an Old Testament scholar who's attend- who attended our church for a long time, um, began, he wrote this book about bearing God's image and, and, and interpreted um, the commandment that tells us that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. I always thought that was such a random one, right? Like these are all really serious and then this one says I'm supposed to say gosh. That seems really kind of random, right? And what she talks about in there, and you can go look up the, 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 the languages and you can see it's right there in front of you that this word bear doesn't mean to say or to talk. The, the, the word uh, in the verse that we read about um, in Exodus 27, when God gives the Ten Commandments, he says to the people, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word take translates to bear, which is to carry. So God has called his people to be bearers of his image, of his name to the world. So the job of his people is to make him known uh, in the way that we live and the things that we do through the world. 
So you're a bearer, if you're a believer today, you're a bearer of God's image. And so we are not to bear the image of the Lord in vain. We are not to be a bad example of the Lord to the world in how we act. We don't ultimately seek to present ourselves to God so that we can be made better for ourselves. We present ourselves to God and say, okay, God, make me the billboard that points people to you. He would give his people detailed instructions on everything from how to build a tabernacle. Because this tabernacle, as crazy as it sounds, is the place where he would be physically present. He chooses to do it physically in that way. Jesus comes, and the Bible tells us, is the word. What is a word? A word is how a thought is expressed, how an idea is expressed, how something that is, uh, that is not physical is made physical. Something that is not tangible is made tangible. You have an idea. If you're a person who has a really difficult time forming ideas into words, then you know just how important it is when the right word comes along. And that's the reason why John tells us um, that in the beginning was the word, it was Jesus coming. What that tells us is that God made himself known to us through Jesus in the flesh. You can look at how Jesus lived and look at what what he did and you can say this is God in the flesh, which is exactly why we talk about Jesus so darn much, because that's an incredibly good thing that we have him as a guide to look to. That's what God would do in that situation. That's who God would love. This is what God would hate. The disciples were meant to engage in the daily physical act of ministry to continue this work, to continue to live out and show the world, not just talk about God, but to be presented in such a way that they point people to him by how they live. The church would then replace Jesus. How crazy is this? He says to these guys, you're going to make a church with a bunch of of messed up people like you, and the Holy Spirit's going to empower you, and that's how God's going to make himself known in the world. As created image bearers of God, we manifest him through the way that we live and work through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says to present ourselves not to be used for sin, but to present ourselves for God. Why? Because what God desires is image bearers, people who would go. What God desires for this church is that we would be a bearer of his image to the world. And what's and, and here's, the, here's kind of the bad news if you're going, well, okay, but is there any way that I can get out of this, right? Is there any way? Maybe you'd go, well, what if we're in like a crisis, right? What if we're in a crisis? What if things get really hard? Then he'll probably be like, it's okay, just kind of be lame for a while. People will understand. Everyone else will probably do that. Unfortunately, every example it seems in Scripture of people bearing God's image is in some pretty difficult circumstances. He doesn't exactly save them from the hard stuff, does he? So what we see is people who The way, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, the hope we have in Jesus makes it so that when suffering comes and trial comes and difficulty comes, instead of backing off and taking a break and saying, this doesn't compute with my faith, we say, my faith is the only thing that can make sense of this suffering and this pain and this trial that happens. It is when things get hard, which is when we want to take a break, that we bear God's image the most. We know this is true. We know this is true deep down. We know that the fire reveals who we really are. 
If you've ever been to a wedding or a funeral with a family, you know that, right? We are either our best selves at weddings and funerals or we are our worst selves at weddings. I'm not saying like going to one. I'm saying planning one, going through one, right? I mean, you really see what's going on in a family when they plan a wedding and try to make that work or when they go through a great loss like in a funeral. And it is in the difficult times that we often show and bear God's name the most. But he gets even more practical as he goes on. In describing how it is that we do this, he says, your members to God we offer as instruments for righteousness. So instead of offering the members of our body to be used for sin, Paul says, your members are to be offered to God as instruments for righteousness. Your members are the parts of your body. Your arms, your legs, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your nose, all that stuff. That's the very members of your body. He's getting as specific and practical as he possibly can. You are to bear God's name in the world by taking all of the parts of you, the things that you do, that you say, the way that you listen, the way that you act, the way that your emotions are processed and manifested out of you. You are to take those very things and you are to offer them to God and say, use these things as instruments, tools, a hammer, a saw, a drill, anything that would be a tool that makes something physical happen. You offer your body, your parts of you to God and say, now use me to make something, to create something, to do something. This is why I said this message is for kind of believers. Your job, he says, is good works. What I want you to do is I want you to go out there and I want you to do good things. As a result of what I have done inside of your heart and inside of you, I love so much, so much, um, the book and the films, uh, and, uh, Les Miserables, uh, which is the story of a man, uh, amongst other people, uh, a man who is a criminal, Jean Valjean. And he's a criminal, and he, goes to, he comes out of jail. He has no hope for a life beyond prison. He's poor, he's homeless, and he goes to be with a priest and spend the night. He steals all the guy's silver, beats him up, leaves, and the police bring him back in the morning. They bring him back in the morning with all the silver. They say, we found this criminal. He's about to be sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. And the, and the priest says to him, says to the, to, the, to the officers, oh, no, I gave all that to him. And then he says, in fact, and he gives him more. And when he talks to Jean Valjean at the end of it, and he's just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with what's happening. He says to him, he says, with this, I've bought your soul. He says, I've bought you for God. He didn't say, okay, now go do whatever you want to do. He says, nope, you don't get a choice anymore. I, with this silver, have purchased your soul for God, so go and do good work in his name. And that's what he goes to do. He goes out from that point on and is literally a vessel of grace wherever he is. 
showing mercy and grace to all those that he comes into contact with. If we have been saved by faith, and if we are free from the enslaving power of sin, we're not defeated by it, we're not bound up in chains by it, then we offer ourselves to God, not just with new thoughts and not just with new feelings and not just with some new philosophies and ways of living life. We offer ourselves up to God, the very physical parts of our body, and say, God, use me now, not for sin, but for righteousness, for good things. Let me be one in the world who does good in your name. The reason the message this morning is called, I think it says it in your bulletin, blue-collar faith, is because I think we have a bit of a problem much of the time in the church and in Christianity today in America. And it is this, we are very comfortable with the idea of white-collar faith. The idea of not actually rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty. If you, if you know the difference between, you know, the, blue, the idea of blue collar and white collar, blue collar is considered more manual type work. I looked, I looked this up. I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting this wrong. You look up a dictionary definition. It's not me, okay? I'm not saying anything one way or another. I'm saying your blue collar is a more manual type of work. White collar, it says in the dictionary, is, is really someone sitting in an office, right? So what God says is he says, roll up your sleeves and get to work and do something real. Something tangible. Show something in how you live your life. We have this thing, though, where we're like constantly wanting to just go, well... How about this? How about we just spend a little more time thinking about it? How about we spend a little bit more time talking about it? How about we spend a lot more time studying it? Maybe let's find some better translations of it. And then eventually, when we're ready, you know, when things slow down in the world and things calm down for me in this crazy season of life that I'm in, and maybe I find the right person to be with, or I have a family or whatever, I finally get a job and I don't have to work eight other jobs, then I can roll up my sleeves and get to work. And God is saying, I want you as tools, physical things that are doing good in my name. I want you to use yourself as instruments of righteousness, your body itself. Think of it like a contractor. Or a, well, think of it like a, like a plumber or an electrician or a person who has a job in building something. And the contractor comes in with the blueprints and lays them out and says, okay, let's get to work today. And as the plumber, you come in and you go, you know, I got to be honest. I think we need to maybe spend some more time looking at these. You know, I mean, they, they maybe happened, uh, you know, in the summer and now it's a lot wetter and they probably didn't think about these things. And maybe we should relook at it again, you know, or these are pre-pandemic plans, you know. I mean, we, we, we really need to take a look at this again and do a little bit more work on our plans here, right? And uh, a good general contractor is going to go, yeah, you know, why don't you just stick to what you do, which is uh, let's go ahead and put the plumber in and the electricity in here and and we'll worry about this other stuff I think for many of us we're just kind of all gathered around these blueprints going well let's take some more time to kind of get this right before we roll up our sleeves and get to work Paul could not be using any more vivid language here he is saying physically use the parts of your body as tools to accomplish and do good things in God's name, in righteousness, because you've been free from sin, and now you can. 
Instead, we often say, just one more Bible study, just a few more sermons, maybe honestly a better church. I just got to get out of this small group and get into another one. Maybe my theology needs some work. Uh, Should it be this hard? It doesn't feel right. Maybe I need some new theology that kind of makes it click a little bit more with me. Today isn't really a work day. It's a holiday for me, so I'm just going to take the day off. Or you could begin presenting the members of your very self as instruments of righteousness. I could present my mouth, my words, the very things that I say or write on the, you know, to people in emails and text messages on the internet. I could use my mouth for righteousness. I can see it as a tool that God is using for righteousness. I could use my hands as instruments of righteousness to love and to serve and to build and to do good. I can use my feet where I go, what I choose, where I choose to go, where I choose to be, the people that I choose to be around. Um, in the church, we often emphasize being the hands and the feet of Jesus. What we don't often emphasize is being the eyes and the ears of Jesus. And what I mean by that is we often don't emphasize the fact that Jesus saw people who were invisible to others. Be the eyes that you have given over to God and he has given you like new ones and now you can actually see all those people that you didn't want to see before because they didn't agree with you or because you think they're part of the problem or just because you have a hard time being around them or just because you don't really want to see any people. You're just done seeing people. Or see the situations that are in front of you And say, how is it that God desires to use me to have ears of Jesus? To actually draw others out and know what is happening in their lives. To draw, uh, to understand uh, what God is doing in the life of another person. Rather than to immediately think that as a Christian, my job is just to talk, 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 tell, tell, tell all the time. To be clear, your work will not save you. Only Jesus will save you. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel like there's a lot less pressure on the quality of work that has to get produced. Your work will not make God love you. God loves you already. And it's not because of your work and what you do with the members of your body. Your work will not give you a better life by the world's standards. Much of the time in the church, all we know to do is to say, do these good things because it'll make your life better and people will look at your better life and say, you've got something that I want. Much of the time, the things Jesus calls us to do do not tangibly make your life easier, more fruitful in the world's eyes, but they're still the right thing to do. Even though our work will not save us, it will not make God love us, and it may not guarantee us a more comfortable life, we still roll up our sleeves and we get to work. When I was, and what he tells us is this, as an encouragement to us, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. We're going to talk more about this next week, about what it means to truly be free and not be a slave. Because to be honest, if you are still living as someone who is enslaved by sin, 
If you still somehow believe or are in that place, then good luck trying to use the members of your body as instruments of righteousness because you're basically wearing shackles on your wrists and your feet and you're not going to get much work done. You're living as a slave, not as a free person. You know, we talk about this being kind of like this internal thing and that God actually intends for this to be something that is very practically lived out in the way that we live out our lives. It's to be manifested in a practical way. I'll never forget when I became a Christian, sitting at a summer camp, hearing somebody uh, talk about the words of Jesus, talking about the soils of people's hearts and, and hearing these words and having this strange, it, it, it like had this strange invasive like effect on me, and I didn't entirely feel comfortable with it, but it was happening whether I wanted it to or not, and it was kind of like someone drilling down into like rock, you know, with like this big long drill bit, drilling down, drilling down, drilling down, and I'm like, okay, what's happening here? I'm kind of feeling something happen here, and then it gets to your heart, and it got to my heart as I was sitting there listening to the words of Jesus that God was able to break through all of the, the stuff that I had put in between me and him, and he was able to, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of this person who was speaking, he was able to drill all the way down into my heart, and it doesn't probably feel that good to have someone drill down into your heart, um, but he did anyway, and that was the point at which he was able to get through to me, and when that happened, and I thought, that feels kind of weird, that feels kind of strange, but you know what? I need him, and so as I, as I responded to a gospel call, I did so thinking that now that God had drilled down into my heart, I was going to be able to work on some things inside of myself and maybe be a better person and clean my life up a little bit and not be such a disaster like everyone was telling me I was being all the time. And it turned out that little did I know that he pulled that drill bit out and then he fed in a big piece of dynamite and just slid it right down in that little hole and he's got the wire out and is over there and I get up to the stage and I'm like, God, I need you in my life. And he goes, boom. And it exploded my life. I was, I was only interested in thinking about this stuff, in kind of processing some feelings about this stuff, in maybe looking at a new approach to philosophy of life in this stuff. I don't know. I, I was open to that stuff, maybe, sure. What I was not ready for was for the Holy Spirit to completely demolish my life as it stood right then and to find myself standing basically in this rubble that was who I used to be with all of these rocks all around me, pieces of me going like this, just sorting through it going, is this? No, God? No. Okay, no. All right. Okay, God. Okay, good. Okay, no. All right, fine. I really like that, but okay. All right, no. And this is what it ended up becoming. We aren't called, the gospel does not make us people who go and find a bunch of godly ways of doing things and then try to tack those things onto our life as a way of making ourselves better. The gospel is drilled right down into our heart. God slips in a piece of dynamite and he detonates it from within. And now that a foundation, a firm foundation of Jesus has become the foundation of our lives, he says, rebuild. And as we rebuild, we rebuild knowing that we are not anymore defeated by sin. And for the first time in our lives, sin doesn't have to be what we do and how we live. And the result of that is that we can offer him the very members of our body and that he can do amazing things with them. 
Those amazing things will probably be the absolute furthest from what you expected him to do with those things. Warning. But he will do incredible things with them because of the power that he has and because of his desire for us to be image bearers of him. Let us not take the name of the Lord in vain. Let us not bear his image in vain. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. God, it is only in the face of your love and your grace that we can be truly honest with ourselves about the ways that sin has taken a foothold in our lives. God, our prayer this morning is that if there are ways that we have come to just accept what is evil, what brings death as just a part of our lives, as just a part of who we are, if there are ways that we have grown numb to sin, if there are ways that we have seen it as so understandable that we've lowered our standard to such a degree that we're just not even able to see it as bad, God, would you show us those things? And would you remind us, give us a distaste for those things. Give us a sense of the severity of what death brings. And God, as we let those go, would we then offer ourselves to you and say, God, use me. Use my words, use my thoughts, even my very emotions that are such a mess, even in the midst of hard circumstances. Use me, God. Use what I give you as mere instruments of righteousness. Would we be a church that truly bears your name well? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.